Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patines of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb which thou beholdst, but in his motion like an angel sings, still choiring to the young-eyed cherubims. Such harmony is in immortal souls, but whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. Hello, and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by... Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And you are listening to Act 5 of The Merchant of Venice. The clip that we just heard was from two of our characters. Well, really, it was from one of our characters, Lorenzo, speaking to his... Uh, his girlfriend, his fiance, in the last act, last scene of *The Merchant of Venice*, and um, you two, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of start a little bit differently today. I want to encourage our readers. I want to encourage our readers by saying that if you can read or listen to or watch a performance of this final scene from *The Merchant of Venice*. And you can understand all of the references that are made, especially by Lorenzo and Jessica, in this scene. You are on your way to being classically educated. <laughs> that is what I am putting forward. Do you, do you guys agree with that? There's a lot of classical references here. So you would, you would have to have read some of the classics to pick those up. They're not necessarily things that we hear in everyday cultural life anymore, the way they would have been in Elizabethan England. Yes, exactly right. Troilus and Cressida, Pyramus and Thisbe, Juno and Aeneas, Orpheus, Oedipus Rex, Diana, they all, Sarah Jane, get a mention in this scene, don't they? They do, along with Cicero and Boethius, I think, kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. So if you get all these... You're at least on your way to being classically educated. Um, but I think there's one more thing that really is the final test about whether or not you're classically educated. And I'm actually going to play another clip from the same scene. You guys, let's listen to it. Let's listen to kind of this allusion to a medieval cosmology, to the, the harmony of the spheres, okay? So here we are again, back with Lorenzo speaking to Jessica. Uh, in Act 5, Scene 1 of Merchant of Venice. For do but note a wild and wanton herd or race of youthful and unhandled colts, fetching mad bounds, bellowing and neighing loud, which is the hot condition of their blood. If they but hear perchance a trumpet sound, or any air of music touch their ears, you shall perceive them make a mutual stand. Their savage eyes turned to a modest gaze by the sweet power of music. Therefore the poet did feign that Orpheus drew trees, stones, and floods, since naught so stockish 
hard and full of rage, but music for the time doth change his nature. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. That man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds is fit for, get this, you guys, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. His, the motions of his spirit are as dark as night, his affections as dark as Erebus. Um, have you guys heard that suggestion from our justice system recently that if someone is not properly attuned to the harmony of the spheres that they are in danger of treason and... <laughs> stratagems and spoils have you guys have you guys heard anything like that recently i didn't know we had a justice system anymore <laughs> <laughs> there is definitely a get in fall in line message going on in the public square yeah so. yeah but in in all seriousness I, I we are going into this resolution scene for the whole play and shakespeare it seems is providing a message about the state of the soul and how it finds peace. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what's going on here in this scene with Lorenzo and Jessica? Do you want to address that, Sarah Jane? That's such a good question. I'll need to think about that for a second. <laughs> it's such a good question, Sarah Jane. You should handle it. I wanted to um, look more closely at the, the lines you just read because yeah. I wondered whether Lorenzo there was perhaps pointing to Shylock, who in Venice refuses to have any music played. And certainly in the court scene, Shylock is a character who has no peace in his soul. And um, in Act Four, there's, there's even a moment where Shylock says that when a man hears the bagpipes played, he wets himself. Now, I don't know if this is true. Perhaps you have experience of this, friends perhaps who can't keep their bladders when the bagpipes <laughs> play. But it was such a strange thing to be in the middle of Shylock's speech in the courtroom. But it's just another pointer that um, he has a kind of hatred of music, which links him with Erebus and this kind of darkness and dullness of spirit, which Lorenzo is talking about. So. I agree. I think there is a sense that in Belmont, at the end of the play, Shakespeare is bringing together and harmonizing the different lines and threads of the story. And I wonder as well whether this links to Heidi's narrative about this kind of redemptive quality, that at the end we're moving towards um, a deeper harmony, not just of the storyline. But it is, I think, true what mm. Lorenzo says. Do you find this, I'm really curious about this. Do you, Sarah Jane, and I'd love to hear you too, Tim. Do you find this a satisfying act? Satisfying. <laughs> um, the ending, the very end seems rather abrupt. I find, I do find it satisfying in the sense that they're all reunited. The ring plot is resolved. But then it seems like there should be one more thing, which is feasting, dancing, reconciliation. And that's the bit we don't get. What we get instead is Portia saying, right, let's go off and have another argument, essentially. And we never get to hear that argument. So in that sense, the very end is unfulfilling. Shakespeare takes us nearly all the way there and then stops short. What well, did you think, Tim? Well... I also found it a little bit dissatisfying for an additional two reasons. I One reason is I miss Shylock. And I, I think we can talk about this a little bit later. The, the main reason I find this scene in this act, which are one and the same, act five is only one scene, um, a little bit dissatisfying is that the ring plot just doesn't, it's just, I don't know. It's a little bit butchered to me. I. I I kind of feel like um, Nerissa and 
Portia and uh, Jessica kind of have their fun having played this game on the boys. And maybe just because I'm a guy, I side with the guys. I'm like, hey, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing. And now you're pretending that you're going to go cuckold them after they did the right thing. And it's a little bit, I, I don't know. It's like it crosses the line for me. Does it cross the line for you guys? Or are you guys kind of laughing and like, oh, no, it's great fun. They don't mean it. I, do, I kind of, I read their tone as being pretty serious because I feel like the guys responded to them with such heat and frustration that I took their joking to be in a tone that lacked some frivolity. So I find act five of merchant of venice to be the most unsatisfying ending of any huh. shakespearean comedy for me and and so what i here's what i'm hoping for today i am hoping that sarah jane with your like beautiful <laughs> allegory that you have <laughs> sarah jane's sarah this, jane's rubbing your forehead like, heidi we can see this lovely just uh, you you saw some things in this play that I had never seen. So maybe you can convince me. And I'm saying this just, I, I'm saying that like, I'm not dogmatic about my position. It's just a response, if that makes sense. It's just a reaction. I find Portia to push that to the ring too far. Mm. And I think there's this, um, uh, hmm, let me think of the word, really jarring juxtaposition juxtaposition is not the right word because that involve that implies a resolution there is a a very jarring dissonance in the tone of the jokes in act five which are just dirty so if you're listening to this with your high school boys or whatever. I'm going to say this just as gently as I can. But ring mm -hmm. is an Elizabethan term for female anatomy, just exactly what you think it is. And so all of the jokes in this act, I mean, they're just intense. And I can just see Shakespearean audiences just like laughing uproariously and slapping their thighs. And, but Here's, here's what I, I think that the punishment, this is to your point, Tim, the punishment that Portia and Nerissa deal out to their husbands is far out of proportion to the crime. Yes. They push it yes. well said. past, I think, be, they created the impossible situation that the guys couldn't get out of, and then yeah. they mercilessly punish them for it. Um, and I think there's a rhyme and a reason to it a bit, particularly with Portia and Antonio. And I think mm. their exchange is important. Um, but I just, I, I feel like there is so much beauty and harmony and resolution in act four that this just kind of feels like almost like an epilogue. And I don't, I don't always, I think I just don't get it. Maybe. I wonder if it helps to see, the ring episode in this act as a kind of parody of the court scene in the previous act. Go so, on. So Bassanio has given away Portia, essentially, because when she gives him the ring, she gives him all of herself. Mm -hmm. And he only gives it away when Antonio tells him to. Exactly. So he's, he's had the opportunity to kind of be self-sacrificing in the way that Antonio has. Um, and then he comes back to Belmont and can't come to Belmont and to Portia saying, um, I have satisfied the law, essentially. He comes and he still, he still requires grace and mercy. And so it's almost like he's on trial now. And again, instead of him getting what he deserves, he gets mercy. And there's this wonderful kind of mystery and magic to Belmont where the, the spirit mm -hmm. and not the letter of the law is applied and love conquers everything. So maybe that helps a bit with, with resolving that. I'm not sure. I definitely think that it wouldn't work, as you say, to be dogmatic about this idea I've been talking about of um, Portia as the Holy Spirit, because I think it's there, but I don't think we can read it in every line. And I think the, the kind of double entendre that we have, where we've almost, we've got sort of high theology alongside 
quite prurient jokes is it's sort of wrong, but it's also masterful of Shakespeare that he's appealing to those different um, desires in the audience at the same time, which is also kind of similar to what we saw in the court mm. scene, mm-hmm. where there was a high violence and a kind of comic caricature of um, Shylock sharpening his knife on his shoe alongside this kind of covenantal yeah. imagery. So um, does that help to make it make sense a bit more? Yeah, no, I think that those everything you're saying is exactly true. I, I think maybe my hesitation about this act is, or kind of my hesitation, that's the wrong word. Um, when I read it, I don't, I think because act four is so redemptive and, um, and so complex. And as you pointed out, it has this high theology to it that I think that feels absent from act five. And then I think so highly of Portia in act four and just find her so lovely. And then in this act, I feel like she's kind of she and and here's what it is. It isn't just her actions because Shakespeare often has a punishment that far exceeds the crime. Like look at Malvolio in Twelfth Night. Like you have to work hard to find a case that kind of justifies him being cursed to outer darkness in the House of Madness. You know, like um, great point. So there is something a little painful sometimes about the uh, the comedic justice in Shakespeare's comedies, um, but I. Th- think for for this particular one what i struggle with is that <laughs> is that it we get we have then in this act i think the same problem that we have with bassanio in act 1 yeah. which is that he's unworthy of her he doesn't give what he's given he's he in some ways is just groveling at her feet for forgiveness about a situation she put him in see we walk out of the play with like they're not equally matched. She has all the power. And maybe that's the point, but I don't find it very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I need to think about that a bit more. That's right. There's definitely a trial of virtue that goes on. And I get the sense that Portia is aware that in terms of courtesy and gratitude, Bassanio has to give the ring to the clerk and the and to Balthazar. And I different to both of you I actually didn't find the jokes about cuckolding Bassanio and Gratiano that cruel because of all the puns and the fact that they're talking about cuckolding them with themselves right. so it's not as if there are there isn't anybody else it is involved. brilliant like that yeah and mm-hmm. so when she says um in lieu of this last night did lie with me mm-hmm. she is talking about the fact that she was telling a lie mm-hmm. and being in disguise and so there are so many jokes there about, you know, this this boy will not wear a beard before I meet him, Nerissa says. But of course, he never will because it's a girl. And right. um, I, I think for me, that stopped short of it being cruel because you know it could never happen. Right. Um, so, yeah, I yeah, think that's, I found, a, great, I found that's a great point. That. that is a great point. And again, that goes to show Portia's you know, her wits and her charm and her superiority yeah. and, um, and that, I mean, she is so, so delightful, but she's definitely does not have the Holy spirit vibe in this one and in this particular scene. And like I said, I can just see an, a, an Elizabethan audience finding this whole act hilarious after kind of the emotional intensity of, of act four, even though act four does have comedy in it for sure, but this might break some of the tension, um, and make it funny, like actually just uproariously funny again. It is hilarious. Yeah. But then I still find there's a kind of serious part to it as well, where Portia is associated with the light and the candles. And even when Narissa tries to make a joke about that, Portia elevates it again. When she's, to- Do you know the bit where she's talking about the candle mm-hmm. and how a little candle can throw his beams so far? And Narissa says, yeah. well, when the moon shone, we couldn't see the candle. And Portia, at that point, you expect her to join in the joke, but she doesn't. She comes back and says, so doth the greater glory dim the less. A substitute shines brightly as a king until a king be by. And um, at that moment, I think, yeah, you are just magisterial. And Mm -hmm. that's brilliant. Um, And then for me, all this light imagery uh, looks like the New Jerusalem, Hmm. the place where there is no night. 
And there are lots of references in this section to um, the night being very light and it almost being like daytime. Hmm. The restoration of all things as we've gone through the gospel story throughout the play in its other uh kind of the beginning, middle, and the creation, incarnation, fall, or creation, fall, incarnation, um, death and resurrection, and now we're at the restoration of all things. Mm. Heidi, I want to point out that you and I have kind of consistently asked um, Sarah Jane to kind of rescue certain scenes Mm -hmm. for us, and she has very consistently been able to rescue those scenes on our behalf. Well, she's got the spiritual like- allegory in this play and it is, I mean, it's compelling. She's, I mean, she's uncovered it again and again. She Nicely has. Done. Nicely done. Shakespeare, hey, do you- Shakespeare put it there. Um, that's, it's all, I take my hat off to the bard. <laughs> so you had to, you know, you've unearthed a lot of things though, that I, both of you have, that I did not see, um, and I'm appreciative of that. I, I want to ask you guys a question. Did you miss in Act Five Shylock? Did you miss him? I'm I'll answer this one first and then see what Heidi thinks. I didn't because I think what we get is the next generation. Mm. And there's a sort of completion there in that Lorenzo finds out he's going to be the heir. Jessica, I find really problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, How come? I don't think I don't think Shylock can come to Belmont. I don't think it would work. Um, it's almost like he doesn't get to cross into the promised land, sort of thing. Right, right. Um, but Jessica, she just whenever it's joyful, she wants to make it into a tragedy. And mm. I don't know if, again, with Jessica, she doesn't ever seem particularly happy with her match with Lorenzo. And I wondered whether she had more of a kind of spark for Lancelot Gobbo. Oh, oh, how interesting. Where do you see that? Where do you see that? I'm curious. That's in, that's in the end of act four where Lorenzo actually gets jealous when he finds them talking with one another. That's right. I forgot Mm. about that. So there are lots of complexities at the end of this play that you just, you do wonder about these relationships and whether they will last. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, I I think that is mostly, I mean, I can find little things like I've said, but even in talking right now with the two of you, I realize my kind of vague sense of dissatisfaction with that five really is like, are these going to make it? Like, (laughs) are these guys okay? Like so, what was that other play we were asking the same question, Heidi? What were we? There was a. Was it, it might have been as you like. As it. you like it, like yeah, yeah, it was as you like it. We were wondering, are these guys gonna make it? Like they've gone through this whole funny charade of a play out in the forest, and now they've like achieved each other. Gosh, are they actually gonna like? It? Is it happily ever after, or is it gonna be sort of like seven years in a divorce and a, like in a messy divorce? So. I, it's, I think that with Lorenzo and Jessica, that's a a fair question because um, their, their union is on shaky ground to begin with because he is a Christian and she is a Jew. And so there's already this sense of unequally yoked. And so we're looking at, at them as either a problem, a problem moving forward or we look at them as kind of the uh, resolution of the play, mm-hmm. right? Like right. The, the, right. the coming together, the conversion experience. Um, and I think that Shakespeare makes it hard for us to see them that way in Act 5 through a couple of, of things. One is what you just said, Sarah Jane, which I hadn't even put together. And I think you're probably right. Uh, it kind of creates a question mark or a sense of dissonance in the, in the audience. And then also their examples of the lovers that they give to each other are all tragic doomed lovers. They're all lovers that die. Troilus and Cressida, there's a misunderstanding and they're separated forever and there's death. Uh, 
Pyramus and Thisbe, same. Uh, Dino and Aeneas, same, right? They're the great lovers of literature, but if you look more closely at their story, they end up divided and dead because of some kind of misunderstanding or intervention that Mm. separates them and divides them forever. Um, And so I I think that there's these subtle clues that Shakespeare is the great master puts in there uh, that if you're paying attention, you you catch that. Um, I do think, and I'm going to switch, I'm going to, turn on a dime here um, about Portia and Antonio. I think that there's a great deal of evidence here that Portia was tormenting Bassanio in order to get Antonio to repent of making Bassanio get rid of the ring. I think she pushes Bassanio um, to the point that he has to come in and say, I should have never, I should never told Bassanio to give the ring away. And this is, I think the symbolic moment for that. The audience needs, if we're the kind of people that are paying attention to that transition from same sex friendship to, uh, monogamous marriage, this is what Portia needs. This is what Bassanio needs. And this is what Antonio needs to transition. And it That's was a great point, Antonio Heidi. that made Bassanio give up the ring. He wasn't going to do it. And Antonio pushed him to do it. And then Portia torments Bassanio, which is funny because that's what the whole play is about is, you know, someone having to bear the sins of another. Right. So she's again, maybe fulfilling the role of the Holy Spirit here to your point, Sarah Jane, by pushing this situation so much so that even Antonio repents of his intervention and overstepping his bounds at that point, because it is the wife. It is the fidelity to his wife that is going to uh, uh, that everybody on stage there needs to hear and see happen. I'd love to draw out that even more. I think this is excellent thinking around this whole um, triangle, which is what we have at the end of the play. And the way I see it is that Portia makes Bassanio see that he can still only get to her through Antonio. Hmm. Or he can only get to that marriage with her through Antonio. So at the end, Bassanio is bound to both Portia and Antonio. So if in this allegory they represent the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, then it shows that he he can't come to the Father except through Antonio, because Antonio is the one who, um, in a way, reconciles Bassanio to Portia for the ring problem. Mm. Um, So you would see that moment as reconciliation? Yes, as as tying tying Bassanio in together with Antonio and Portia. Hmm. I think in your allegory that that works. I think in your allegory that works, but, and I also, it's different from the point that I was making though, interestingly enough, which is that Portia is forcing Antonio to repent of his, of intervening improperly. And so those are two different interpretations. And I think the text bears both of them out, but yours is Mm -hmm. more compelling in terms of the, the overarching spiritual allegory for sure. Yeah. And I don't want to push it too hard and kind of be too desperate to tie this all together, but that, that just is how I see it. That um, I once did lend my body for his wealth, which but for him that had your husband's ring had quite miscarried. I dared be bound again. And that's it. That's kind of Antonio locked in Bassanio and Portia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the trial of every man, the, the Christian, mm. the Christian who, I suppose this is like Shakespeare's version of going in front of pearly gates. It's a bit of a cliche, but that seems to be what happens. Um, And then I wanted to go back um, to what Heidi was saying about the tragedy of the relationships listed by Lorenzo and Jessica. And I wondered as a modern audience, whether we miss something here, because I mean, again, could this possibly be comic? Could it be that as lovers, um, on a beautiful night in this beautiful island where everything's been sold for them. They're going to get all the money. Um, They're just indulging in this spot of melancholy. And of course the audience would all know the endings of these stories. Right. So there's kind of a bathos here because when they get to themselves, um, 
it's sort of it's it's sort of um really anticlimactic isn't it they they don't compare right. to Dido and Aeneas they've kind of got a gondola across a canal in Venice it's it's not the same <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder whether it might be read as as like mock tragic mm-hmm. yeah I've seen it played like that a couple of times when it's just like really funny and overwrought and uh just like a, an obvious parody of you know your your idea of Shakespearean lovers of you know Romeo under the uh, under Juliet's window. You know the original billing of the play we talked about it in the first couple of acts was a tragical comedy, right? And we talked about kind of how how strange that is to have um, this this Jewish character who's much maligned at the center of this tragical comedy and it's a little bit hard to read that genre i think today because of kind of the history of um the jewish people in the 20th century but okay let's just imagine that this whole play has been performed as in shakespeare's day a tragical comedy that would really lend credence to this idea that you guys are bringing up that maybe this last scene and all these misunderstandings between these um, perspective lovers uh, are are kind of bathed in melodrama that might fit snugly with the original genre that Shakespeare intended. Would that make does that make sense to you guys? Like we got deep for a second into sort of like genre interpretation. Like I started feeling like a real uh, the kind of academic that I really would rather not be. I started feeling that way. But I think I, I think I would argue for like maybe Shakespeare is trying something. Uh, he's trying for a genre that we have a hard time um, envisioning today because of the central character of Shylock and all the kind of historical baggage associated with him. Um, but maybe in Shakespeare's day, there's a way of playing this final scene in a way that kind of. Um, heightens the melodrama it makes our audience snicker and it diminishes the you know my kind of objection to the jokes that the girls are playing on the boys that seem a little bit too cruel you know maybe the genre would kind of offset my the original genre performance would offset my concerns maybe we had that question on a previous episode, didn't we? Whether we thought this was a tragedy or a comedy, and I wonder yeah. whether anyone anyone has changed positions by now, mm. or if there are new thoughts about that. I think it's how do what do you think? Definitely a comedy, and I think talking it over with the two of you has lightened it a bit for me because. It is funny. It's just there's there's so many heavy themes in this particular play, and I am like a very literary kind of reader, and um, and I read it instead of seeing it performed, and you know, there's lots of reasons that I I I tend to focus more on the the heavier themes of the play, but it has over talking with the two of you has lightened it a bit considerably to me. I think it's definitely a comedy, and I think even the hard the hard parts of what we see in Shylock and and how the modern interpretation of Shylock tends to be very sympathetic to to him um even that is i i mean you just can't escape that Shakespeare's intent would have been for that to be part of the resolution not a mm. tragedy um, mm. we can interpret Shakespeare however we want we don't have to interpret it according to his desires for it i'm not that big on author intent but I do not think that it was intended by Shakespeare to highlight cruelty against the Jews. And so I I think even that part and, you know, Sarah Jane's interpretation of him as, you know, representing the law um, really, I think, adds more weight to that, to it as entirely a comedy. Mm. I, I want to jump in here. Go on. Sarah Jane. I'm so, I, hold, hold on to your point. I just think this is, I wanted to raise this before we gathered this afternoon to um, talk about the play. The background of my comment uh, is a little bit long. My friend Todd and I were having breakfast yesterday morning and we were talking about um, 
that our president has nominated a new Supreme Court justice. Sarah Jane, I have no idea if you're like in the loop on this. Like I assume Heidi as an American, you like you can't help but hear it. It's just all over the news. So there's this, there's this, we kind of have this history in the United States of the last 50 years. There's kind of a divide among Supreme Court justices. You're either a conservative judge who attempts to really focus on the original intention in the text by the authors, by the founding fathers. And then there's more um, progressive judges that take the Constitution as a living document. And because the world of 1776 was so different than the world of 2020, there must be a kind of active judicial bench that is trying to understand the ideals of the founding fathers more than the text per se in its interpretation of various trials that come before them. I, hopefully that's a fair um, rendition of kind of both sides. And I asked Todd, we were talking about Merchant of Venice and I asked Todd, I was like, Todd, do you think that you would have a different hermeneutic as a Supreme Court justice than you would have as uh, a Shakespeare reader or as a Shakespeare interpreter or as a Shakespeare actor? And so that's my question to you. I, I, we don't need to get into like whether or not you're like on the left or the right of the Supreme Court justice decision. That's kind of not what I'm asking. My, my question is more, do you think it's inconsistent if you decided to have two different kind of hermeneutical stances? One that's like towards Shakespeare, it's very liberal, it's malleable. You, you take the text seriously, but what you're um, really interested in is making the text come alive. Do you think there's something inconsistent about having that kind of a view as opposed to having a more um, text-oriented, author-intent-oriented stance toward the law? Is that, would that be an inconsistent stance to have two different stances? No, it's not inconsistent at all because principles of justice are different than literary interpretation. So statesmanship and... Uh, governing principles of, you know, the just governance of, of a city, of a land, of a nation is an entirely different question with a lot more at stake than uh, the weight of literary interpretation. Mm. And especially considering, and I'm very left-wing on Shakespeare on this, and I've taken some, <laughs> I've taken some heat from that even, uh, but the reason is because Shakespeare writes texts that beg for interpretation. Um, he doesn't tell us what to think about them. And they have these universally human themes that, of, that kind of weave in and out of culture over time. And so in, in a sense, the only interesting thing about Shakespeare, in my opinion, is the, the weaving in of those themes over time. Um, otherwise, it's just, you know, another story that we have to read in a certain way. And we're always looking for some kind of clues to unlock the true meaning of it. Um, I think it's much more fun to look at Shakespeare as, have you heard that of that book that it's like, is it a rabbit or a duck? I can't remember the name oh, of the yeah. book. That's yeah. you draw like a, you know, a draw. You, if you turn it this way, it looks like a rabbit. If you turn it the other way, it looks like a duck. And um, is it a rabbit or a duck? And I'm I don't like the Shakespeare interpretation. That's like, it's a rabbit. Mm. Because the text says it's a rabbit. Right. Because, or Shakespeare yeah. wanted it to be a rabbit. Yeah. Like I, Shakespeare's dead. So we can now read his work uh, and apply it to our own time. And I think that's what gives it some zest, some color, some interest. Um, otherwise it's just, then it's just a historical document that we can only look at in, in terms of its own context. Right. Um, but I think governing a nation is entirely different and principles of justice and right living and virtue and civic responsibility exist over time. And the only reason they have any weight is because they stay the same over time. Mm, mm. Sarah Jane? Yeah, I think I was wondering what would Portia say to that question? Because I think <laughs> oh, that's question, a great, that's a great way of framing it. That's a great way of framing it. She, this question is very much aligned with the play, which is about the law, isn't it? So I, I think that we have to believe that language conveys truth. 
regardless of whether it's legal or um, an artistic fictional play. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to always stick to the letter of the law or always stick to the spirit of the law. You have to have both. You can't have the spirit without the letter. You can't have the letter without the spirit. So mm. um, I, I think neither right nor left are correct. Um, I think that you you need a kind of wisdom and discernment that um, pays attention to the reality that there are absolute and universal truths. Mm. Um, and I agree with Heidi that that's not so pressing a point when it comes to a fictional play because there's there's not so much at stake. Although I, I do think there are wrong readings of Shakespeare without a doubt. Agreed. It, it, Agreed. And because um, we do take the text seriously, I think that there's a kind of safeguard against um, making the play say whatever you want it to say. Right. Well, if it's Which I don't think anybody on anybody on this show is like in no. danger of no. doing that. If it looks like if it's a rabbit or a duck, great, but it's not a spaceship. Right? Like so, <laughs> right. Yeah. And what's so great about it though is that there there's no censure. It's not like mm-hmm. you cannot put on this play and set it in Las Vegas. <laughs> that would be wrong. Mm. It would be ridiculous. Directors are free to do whatever they like and the audience will judge. And that's yeah. the great fun of going to see a, a play to see how someone else has seen it and whether or not you agree and trying to discern what's true and what's not, I suppose. But yeah. you do need to have that anchor point of truth. Otherwise it just sort of drifts off into nonsense. Yeah. Heidi, the, the um, I'm going to nerd out for a second. The, the rabbit or duck analogy comes straight from one of my favorite philosophers, uh, an Austrian, a 20th century Austrian named Ludwig Wittgenstein. And he had an actual drawing of the rabbit duck in this dense theological tome called Philosophical Investigations. And his, his point, which I find really compelling, is that one can see, one can look at this very f- simple figure. I wish that we could post it so listeners could see it. It's just a simple, like a chalk drawing. And it has, if you're seeing it as a rabbit, the eye of the rabbit is on the right-hand side and the ears of the rabbit kind of stretch out behind it on the left-hand side. But if you look at it the other way, the ears of the rabbit are the bill of the duck with the eye of the duck kind of back into the right. His point is you can't see it as both and. You can only see it one way or the other way. And you can kind of decide to switch back and forth. I'm going to decide. Now I see it as a rabbit. I'm going to decide. Now I see it as a duck. But his point is kind of like, when we see, we don't just see the fact of the figure, if that makes sense. We don't just see the line and the circle for the eye. We interpret, like we see it as one or we see it as the other, and we can kind of switch back and forth there's something really compelling and also a little bit haunting. I mean, a little bit worrisome, I think, about like our, our human epistemic proclivities that we don't just see um, the fact of the line, the figure of the line, but we're always kind of like interpreting to ourselves. That, um, Annie Dillard has this wonderful quote about um, amoebas there's something about like the, the kind of seeing mechanism of an amoeba that is non-interpretive. And she kind of makes this joke a little bit tongue in cheek, but maybe not that amoebas are the only living organisms that actually see the world as it is, you know, without kind of like this, like this interpretive step. Um, and so I think like so much of what's fun about Shakespeare is that we're constantly like the three of us, we're constantly trying on interpretations and we're kind of testing them against the other interpretations that we hold, like the other two of us hold, and we're testing it also against the text and we're kind of trying it on these, these interpretive schemes. We're trying them on like different shirts to see if they fit. And it's really, it's, an, it's a complicated sort of task. Part of the reason I love doing the show so much is that it's a task that seems particularly conducive toward, no, that's not the right way of saying it. The task 
is strengthened when you're doing it with friends Mm -hmm. and people that you really respect. Um, I love doing this show with you guys because you're friends. And when I say something kind of dumb, an interpretation that's kind of dumb, you'll, you'll say something like, maybe there's a different way to see it, Tim. I don't, I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe there's a different way of seeing it, which is a lot, which is a lot better than, um, let's just do it. No, I can't be true. You know, there's a sort of, at least for me, there's a certain kind of like fragility, fragility that I feel sometimes when I'm trying on a new interpretation, does this work? And like, I'm birthing a little child into the world. It's like, let's treat it with some care because I'm a little bit nervous about what the world might do to it. It's part of the reason why I like doing the show that you guys are um, particularly adept at uh, escorting my <laughs> frail children into the world. <laughs> well, I think that that's what friend, what relationships do. That's what community does for each other. They give, they give each other eyes to see, right? If I see a duck yeah. and I'm like, well, what if you just turn it a little way? Do you see it? Cause I can see the rabbit. You know, and uh-huh, uh-huh. and I think that that's there's there's context in which that is very healing to our souls, and then there's context in which it's really important to to say that is just a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, mm-hmm. and I think that knowing, just being able to discern those situations is part of the education of a human soul, and. And it's really fun to engage with Shakespeare because I, I think you can see a rabbit or a duck. So I, and I yeah. think that's really great because there's so much, there's so many other contexts in which, man, you just like, there's just one way to see something. And it, it uh-huh. is important to really hold that up, you know? Mm. I've learned so much from these conversations too, Me too. because to, um, yeah, to speak to both of you has been so um, reassuring and enriching. A lot of the time, I think, in the environment that I teach in, the style is combative. So mm. it's like, there's a rabbit, skin it, there's a duck, shoot it. Mm. And, and that's something <laughs> that I have had to um, really work on because, um, I, and I've seen it actually, visiting American schoolrooms where it's not so much about debate and shooting each other down. It's about saying yes, and, or mm. no, but, and building on what someone else has said. And so um, I think it's, it's quite damaging probably to students to be in a classroom where it is a battleground of ideas that mm. just shoot each other down. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think hmm. there's a lot. There's a lot to learn from the way that things are done at Cersei and in classical schools. Hmm. Um, That's good. But dialectic is is like it is like ascending a staircase, isn't it? It's not kind of. That's a great. That's a, what a great metaphor. That's such a great metaphor. Yeah, the dialectic, the back and forth. I mean, like even the working of the feet is an ascension. You know, when you go up the stairs, each foot has to work at a time. And if you think of kind of the relationship of student to student or student to teacher as being that back and forth. Yeah. It kind of when done well, it mimics the steps of ascent. That's great. The thing is, if I taught like this, my boys would find it hilarious because they're always looking for the, for being shot down. It's almost like the game. In oh, the classroom. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's, it's, um, I mean, it's great fun and it's a joke, obviously it's banter, but that's, um, it's a very different style of teaching hmm. and I'm definitely going to go back next year with some, some new ideas. Hmm. I want to hear how the boys accept it when you try. When They'll you probably try. say, ma'am, have you been hanging out with loads of Americans or something? <laughs> <laughs> what has your child Elizabeth been doing to you? <laughs> what sort of softening of the soul have you experienced since, since birthing this baby girl? But you know, what's lovely about what she just said is that those boys call you ma'am. And that is something that American schools should learn from because sometimes our minds are so wide open that the good things have fallen out. And that's one mm. of them. So, mm. yeah, it is strangely respectful yeah. despite being absolutely brutal. Yeah. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I wondered um, what you thought about this moment at the very end of act five, where mm. Portia 
gets this letter. So, so talking about kind of interpretive difference. For me, this is a really weak point in Shakespeare's play. It's almost as if it has to be done because Shylock has lost half his wealth. Antonio has cast his bread on the water. It needs to return to him manifold. And Shakespeare just kind of throws it in there like, by the way, I got this letter. And guess what, Antonio? You're going to have some of your ships back. You're going to be rich. Don't ask me how I got the letter. Move on. And, and for me, that was just really like, uh, I thought Shakespeare was being a bit lazy there. Yeah. Yeah. Could he have ordered to leave it undone? To not wrap up that loose end and kind of restore... Antonio's fortunes no it had to be tied up I just yeah. thought that it was like he wasn't very interested in doing that like, yeah, oh, yeah I agree there's, it, the, there are your ships back <laughs> I think it feels there's I think it feels at that moment like a fairy tale which is one particular contextual uh, interpretive tool that we haven't really used for Merchant of Venice, but it's pretty common if you go into the uh, the scholarship about this particular play. There's a lot of chatter about the, the fairy tale structure uh, of this play. And this moment, uh, in fact, just the whole ship's thing, the, 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 the coincidences connected with Antonio's ships feels very uh, much like elements in a fairy tale that are absolutely impossible, that, but they add this magical quality to the story. Mm. Yeah, That's right. And it sits awkwardly then with mm -hmm. the imagery of manner and things like that. But it's, you're right. And it goes back quite pointedly to the source story um, mm -hmm. where it is set in a fairy tale land. So Absolutely. That is a very good way of explaining that, I think. You guys, we've got um, two more episodes to this collection of Merchant of Venice. Um, I'm going to talk about one right now. I interviewed my Shakespeare teacher, Judith Sparky Roberts. I think I mentioned in the first couple of acts that I'd like to bring Judith on. I'm going to call her Sparky because that's what I called her when I was acting for her. And we, uh, Sparky has, comes from a Jewish background. And I wanted to ask her the question that we discussed during the first couple of acts. Is this play an anti-Semitic play? Is Shakespeare anti-Semitic? Um, Sparky has got an incredible Shakespeare resume. And I, I, I'm kind of looking forward to you guys meeting her at some point. I think she might be able to kind of pinch hit for us on occasion because She's so good. She's so knowledgeable about the canon. Um, but I really wanted to ask her about, you know, as someone from a, with a Jewish background and someone who loves Shakespeare, what do you do with this play? So it was great listening to her perspective on that. That is going to be the episode that is released after the one that you are listening to listeners right now, Act 5. Then we're going to regroup the three of us, and maybe Sparky, I haven't asked her about that, and I haven't, like, the three of us haven't really nailed it down. I, I think it might be fun to bring her on for the Q&A, the last episode in which we tie up any sort of loose ends or any sort of, like, you know, like lingering questions in our, in our, in our listeners' minds. Um, so just to say it compactly, we'll have two bonus episodes instead of one for Merchant of Venice. It's exciting. Yeah. I think it'll be really good. Um, okay, you guys, I, I, any closing thoughts? I mean, I feel like we swallowed a whale with this play. There's so much going on. I mean, it's like, it's no more text than any other Shakespeare play, but just the complications for me of history in the 20th century have just made the interpretation of the play so complicated to say nothing of the fact, like all of the kind of a spiritual um, analogies and allegories that are kind of like hanging from the low branches of this play, there's just so much to tack to 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 take in for like swallowing a whale. So I ask with some reservation, do you have final thoughts? Is there anything <laughs> that we have not that we've not tackled yet that you want to tackle? I no, I think that we've we've we have 
some of these conversations have kind of floated, you know, and taken veers and turns and, uh, but that's been what's really fun about it. I think my final thought is to encourage our listeners to this, this is a play to watch. I mean, all Shakespeare plays for sure need to be watched. They're not intended to be read in an armchair. Um, but this particular play, because it is, uh, so rich with potential interpretations, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's so many different you know, rabbits and ducks, um, that it, I just, I would say maybe pick three and watch them in a row, uh, over the course of a week or two. And then, and then with a friend, um, socially distanced appropriately, of course, uh, and then talk about it. Or let us know your thoughts on the Facebook page. Uh, there's this. This is a play that one of the ways to sink your teeth into it is uh, is to watch multiple performances. Heidi, especially for me, this closing scene. I just when we were talking, I imagined like three different ways in which you could you could show this closing scene. I mean, I just imagine the women standing forward, kind of like having their eyes. Uh, closer to the audience and having the men kind of behind them, you establish this sort of rapport between the women and the audience that could really heighten the kind of playfulness that they're having at the expense of the men. Um, So they're just like, there are all these different ways, especially for that last scene to be conveyed to say nothing about the entirety of the play. Um, So I'm, I'm, always friendly with what you just said, Heidi, but I'm especially friendly toward, um, toward it right now. Go see various interpretations of the play and see how different directors and actors make these difficult choices about the, do you see a duck? Do you see um, a rabbit? Sarah Jane, closing thoughts? I want to suggest a plays the thing, a cultural retreat to Venice when the world opens up again. <laughs> This is the best final thought we've ever had on the show. Best final thought we've ever had. I think we should state there's a beautiful monastery that takes guests called Don Orione Catholic Monastery. Um, And we could go to Venice. And read read the play over dinner, walk around, look at some paintings. Drink some wine. Yeah, maybe see a duck on the canal, argue with (laughs) it. I'm in. Sold. Hey, Sparky mentioned that when she was younger, before she was a Shakespeare aficionado, that she went to the Rialto Mm -hmm. in Venice. And she said that so much of her vision of the play was influenced by that vision of the Rialto. So it's another reason to take Sarah Jane's recommendation up. We must go see the Rialto. I love it. Great. I love it too. Okay. Both of you, thank you so much. We'll talk again when we do the, um, question and answer. I want to remind everybody how they can stay in touch with us. Best way, Heidi already mentioned it, on the Facebook Close Reads Discussion Group page. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can reach us via email by writing to closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Now is a great time to send us those questions for the Q&A. Um, I have one that I'm going to already ask Sarah Jane. It's about how she pronounces the word, the phrase, where there's two meanings to one phrase, and it's spelled two words, D-O-U-B-L-E, new word, E-N-T-E-N-R-D-E. I hope I spelled it right. Because I'm wondering if, like, English, what's the saying? that I think it's a Chesterton saying. Americans and the British two nations separated by a common language. So I'm going to be prepared, Sarah Jane. Be prepared. I'll I'll go and practice my French. (laughs) All right, you guys. Thanks so much again. And thanks everyone for tuning into Act 5 of The Merchant of Venice. And go forth, be well, and happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.